On December 1, 1948, a man's body washed up on Somerton Beach in Australia. And now you know as much as anyone about the Somerton Man. You're listening to Old Timey Crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott. old-timey crimey i'm christy i'm still bleeding after a month and i'm amber (laughs) (laughs) and we are here back again with your filthy words and historical true crime for the week before we get started first of all i'd like to give a shout out to uh our user our users god what am i talking about our listeners in apparently Saudi Arabia, where we are num- 95 on the true crime list. What? Wow. <laughs> so, to our Saudi Arabian listeners, Shokron Lak Ilya Aliasme Ilya Kalamatina Al I hope I did that even remotely correctly. My, my mother did not fuck camels. Thank you very much. <laughs> Oh, dear God. So thank you to all of our listeners. And we will thank you, thank you, thank you even more if you'll go to, you know, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever, and give us a five-star review and tell us what your favorite old-timey case is. That can be one that we've covered. Hey, it can be one that we haven't, and maybe we'll cover it then. And also don't forget about our Patreon. That is patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey where we have all kinds of wonderful old timey goodness for you. There's it's, it's also crimey. It's, it's both. And we have our episodes bonuses for the patrons that they get every single week. And then they get a special bonus each month. So that has been very fun. And this week, Scott told an amazing story that we couldn't believe we'd, we'd never heard before. It was really fascinating. And, and it, it, it had, it had filthy words right in the title. I hope you like cock scratching. That's part of it. It was tailor-made for this podcast. <laughs> so we would really appreciate it if you would take a look at that. And you'll also get a shout-out on the show. And if you do want a shout-out but, you know, you're not really the uh, long-term relationship type, you can always leave us a buck on the nightstand uh, at PayPal with our email address, oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. So you guys want to talk about a guy that nobody knows who he is still? Sure. Still. Still, 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 70 years it's been. So we are talking about the Somerton Man, also known sometimes as the Tamam Shud case. Now, all right, so on November 30th, 1941, a man who wouldn't come forward for another decade or so goes, he, he sees a man carrying another on his shoulder. This is at Somerton Beach, which is kind of close to Adelaide, Australia. That same day, around that same time, a man is seen in that same area, Somerton Beach, in kind of an odd condition. So jeweler John Bain Lyons is walking on the beach with his wife. It's around 7 p.m. or so. And they see a man. He's he's sprawled out. He's right by the seawall. And the seawall is right next to a set of stairs. He's sprawled out next to those stairs, lying on the ground. Uh, his, he's on his back. His legs are out in front of him. His feet are crossed. He's got his head. He's kind of using the seawall as a pillow. It's, it's propping his head up. Those and, don't make good pillows. 
No, really. I, I looked at pictures. It's just, it's not even like a, a wall wall, like a constructed wall. It's a bunch of very sharp, jagged rocks. It's just like, like somebody threw, like over the span of like months, like a bunch of guys threw rocks. They just happened to land in a wall shapes form. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, really. They kind of think he maybe looks drunk, but he's also very, he's clean shaven. He's well-dressed. He's wearing a nice, clean suit and tie. The shoes he's wearing, they, they don't look like he's been wandering around on the beach. They actually look like they've been shined pretty recently and that, like they might be new. Now, at this point, he's definitely still alive because he's still moving. He he moves his arm, and they said later that it looked like he was trying to, to take a drag off of a cigarette. Now, about a half an hour or so passes, and another couple sees the man they would report. At this point, they said he wasn't really moving. So later on, it would be unsure whether he was alive at that point. And the boyfriend of that couple, he said, he must be dead to the world not to notice them. Oh, sorry. He said that about the mosquitoes going crazy around his face. I skipped that part. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. Kind of need an antecedent for that pronoun. You want some of my (laughs) painkillers? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, so, you can't have them. I need damn them. Damn it. My Selfish. phone more important than your back. No offense. <laughs> to you, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> it also probably hurts a lot more than my back. <laughs> I, I don't think so, because I have painkillers. Well, that is true. Yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. So now the following day, it's December 1st, in the morning, that same man john lyons who was the jeweler who was with his wife and saw the man he's on the beach going for a swim and when he comes back he sees a crowd gathered around and the man is still there actually it was two apprentice jockeys who had found the body and as i always say it's always little boys who find the body of course yeah i've actually got a theory about that I've actually got a really good theory about that. Like most of the girls that I grew up with in Salisbury were very indoorsy type girls, you know, like, like playing with dolls and, and having like little tea parties and stuff like that. And little boys are just like essentially military. Well, I think I think that definitely is a more not to not to say that you're old timey, but you're a little bit older than me. Absolutely, and I'm, I'm ten years older than everybody here. And those ten years, it doesn't seem like a lot, but growing up in the '80s versus growing up in the '90s, yeah, there was a huge difference. My my range, whenever I grew up, I was allowed stay inside the city. That, that was the rules. You're not allowed to cross any of the bridges leaving the city of Salisbury. Other than that, go wherever the fuck you want. You want to you wanna play in the local creek? Go for it. You want to uh, you wanna go up onto the hill and goof around the, in the cemetery? Go for it. Back alley filled with broken bottles? Have a blast, kid. <laughs> to be fair, uh, aside from... Aside from the back alley with the broken bottles, that was largely my experience, too. We wandered around in the woods all the time and way beyond our property. It got lost multiple times. And the first time my mother allowed me to, to drive my drive, ride my bike the quarter mile to my friend's house, which was on a very rural road that people sped down at about 65 miles an hour. Uh, her words to me were, 
Well, wear your helmet, and uh, if uh, somebody kills you, don't come crying to me. Mm-hmm. To be fair, okay. to be fair, I, but you were—I I picture you as kind of a tomboy growing up. I was definitely a girly girl, but I also loved the woods. I—I—I I, uh, I contained multitudes. So, uh-huh. you know, what? I'm actually—I'm very dis- like disappointed that for the amount of wandering I did as a child, I never discovered a body. Like Same. I. I, I feel like I should have, and I'm sad that I didn't. This all started. I, it, took me, it took me until I was 19 years old to find my first. This, <laughs> this, this all started because I said jockeys were little boys. Yeah. So, so the uh, the man getting back to the case the the man really hadn't moved since Lyons saw him the night before. Uh, but he really, the, the whole idea of him trying to smoke a cigarette might have been accurate because there was an unfinished cigarette on his collar. So this man is taken, we're just going to call him the Summerton Man from now on. He is taken to Royal Adelaide Hospital. And there, an initial examination is carried out by Dr. John Berkeley Bennett, who at that point in time, one article I said, one article I read said he put the time of death at 2 a.m. at the earliest. Uh, which would have been about seven hours after Lyons and his wife saw the Somerton man the day before. But then a later pathology report by, by the same man. So I don't know where they got that in from. Or no, sorry, by a different man. They're both named John, though. Right. John Burton <laughs> Cleland was the second man. And I love the fact that he said, I think this man is a Britisher. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're going to get into some stuff that he said. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he placed it at or well before midnight. So some differences there, it's kind of hard to tell. And they weren't super precise with their time of death. They, a lot of it was based on, you know, how digested was the food in your stomach? Well, that depends also not only on when you died, but when you ate it. So if he didn't have dinner and they mistook, what, you know, he had a late lunch, that can change, that can shift everything by a couple of hours. So. Yeah. and. We're very sorry. There's going to be a lot of un-PC th- uh, things said this episode. Um, for example, uh, the body was found near the crippled children's home. Oh, dear. That's that's yeah. how it was written. Yeah. That was the name of the place. That, oh, yeah. That, we- is, that is not like a descriptor. That's where all the crippled children live. No. It was called the capital C, crippled, capital C again, children's, capital H, home. I love that you give this warning during this episode, but not during the one where we talked about a guy who was committed for multiple uh, ad- or synonyms of the word moron. Yeah. <laughs> Many of which are offensive today. <laughs> so You don't choose to be crippled. You choose to be a moron. <laughs> well, I think the, uh, the guy in that case did. Yeah. So uh, the cause of death, at the moment, at that time, they were like, eh, maybe heart failure, but they didn't really have any particular reason for that. And Bennett notes at the time that he thinks that poisoning may have played a part here. So they check in to see what he has on him. And what they didn't find in his pockets was any of the things that you would expect to find in somebody's pockets. Identification, money, a wallet, anything like that. They also didn't find labels on his clothing. Most of them had been cut off. There was only one label r- remaining that was on the back of his tie. So maybe something that was missed. And it was Keen, K-E-A-N-E. 
He also had tickets from Adelaide to Summer Summerton Beach. I keep on wanting to say Somerset because we live near Somerset. It's gonna it's gonna happen at some point. So, and he had that ticket had been used. Obviously, he's at Somerton Beach. He also had an unused ticket to Henley Beach, which is up in Adelaide. So that's interesting. So I only have the transportation times now. Right now, a trip from Central Adelaide to Somerton Beach on public transportation is anywhere from 46 minutes to an hour and a half. So it's not really like he made a big journey to get there. They found two combs, a pack of gum, matches, and a pack of... Not just gum. Excuse me. Juicy fruit gum. The king of all vintage gums. Oh, I didn't know it was juicy fruit. Nice mm-hmm. detail. Thank Excellent. You. Juicy fruit. It's it's only slightly better in, in length of t- flavor than fruit stripes. Yeah, I'd agree with you on that. And we're going way back in time with, do they still have fruit stripes? Do oh, they, they still have juicy fruit? They do. Yes, they do. Juicy fruit is fucking great. But if you sniff the stick of gum, you'll you'll cut your flavor in half. Yeah. <laughs> so they also find the matches and a pack of cigarettes, but the pack was different than the cigarettes that were inside it. So it was an army club pack, but they had Kensitas, Kensitas, something like that inside. And those are a pricier kind. So a couple of things, one thing on that. It could have been like later it comes up. Oh, maybe he was poisoned by the nicotine. It could have also been that he had the pricier cigarettes and he didn't want anybody trying to bum a smoke off of him with, you know, seeing, Oh, he's smoking Kenza does. I'll, I'll try and bum a smoke off of that guy. If they see the army club ones, they're like, eh, maybe I'll try somebody else. That's just my thinking. I, I enjoy good Chesterfield. <laughs> so, and his pants were mended and the thread was an unusual orange color. It was burnt sienna. That's As not a for, real color. <laughs> it's a crayon even, I think. I'm sorry. I'll believe that whenever I see regular sienna and raw sienna. <laughs> you can't see any colors. You're right. God damn it. I'm just salty. <laughs> I'm salty because of color blindness. <laughs> Now, as for the body, his age was established as some sources say late 40s. Some sources pin it down a little closer between 40 and 45. His legs were interesting. They showed evidence of lots like this guy did not skip leg day and his toes were strangely shaped. So this is from the inquest. Quote, I have not seen the tendency of calf muscle so pronounced as in this case. His feet were rather striking, suggesting this is my own assumption that he had been in the habit of wearing high-heeled and pointed shoes. And Sexy, sexy. Well, the theory was maybe he was a ballet dancer because the development of his calf muscles was higher up on the calf than you get with other types of athleticism. So if you think about, think about when you stand on your tiptoes, like on your very, very tiptoes, and you can feel that upper, upper calf tensing. See, it... I, I've 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 thought that I've often thought maybe though he was a professional diver. Why diving? Okay, so professional divers they actually have like fairly decent calf muscles, and they're going to get that same pressure on the toe because they do a few of those bounces. 
on the boards before they jump in. Well, and they have to look good in their speedo, but that doesn't explain the feet. Well, they're doing the bounces off the tips of the toes. So that would deform the feet? Enough practice it would. Enough practice, yeah, definitely enough practice it would. Might explain if he chose to go where he ended up dying, it might, you know, being a diver, he wanted, if he did do this on purpose, he maybe wanted to die close to the sea. Possibly, possibly. There's, there's, uh, there's a few other things and we'll, we'll talk about them as they pop up that make me think this guy was a diver. Interesting. I'm eager, eager to hear that. So yeah, his, his pupils were kind of small. He had some drool on his chin um, his his spleen grew three sizes that day in the oh. spirit of the season. Oh no! Happy spleen's giving, everybody. <laughs> Happy spleen's giving. Oh, may all your spleens be filled. So, and his oh, this is a funny typo. His lover was distended with congested blood. Yay! Hell, <laughs> his liver was distended with congested blood, and it was. Kind of assumed, judging by his stomach contents, that his final meal had been a pasty, and that's I, I knew I knew what this was kind of, but I still looked it up. It's a pastry that you fill it with like meat and vegetables, something savory, and then fold it over. So kind of like a calzone, but with like beef and veggies. And it actually it sounds sounds pretty good. I want one. And there was also not very mm, some uh, some blood in his stomach, so that was kind of curious. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's your stomach. There's supposed to be blood there, right? Vampire. Vampire. Always go to vampire. Speaking of, there were some blood stains on the back of his neck and his shirt. That is curious, but the pathologist uh, in his later report wondered if maybe that came from the mortuary slab, if they just hadn't cleaned it up enough be- from the, the last person that was on it before they put Summerton Man on it. So... Just somebody being sloppy could have accounted for that. Um, his fingers were tobacco stained, and it was noted that he was a heavy smoker in the later pathology report. Now, I'm, I'm talking now about the pathology report by uh, Professor John Burton Cleland, because we're, we're about to get into uh, some, some interesting commentary. What, like when he says uh, in the pathology report, straight nose, not Jewish. Oh, dip. Yeah, I read that and I was like, oh, yikes. Oh, man. No, you shouldn't have said that. No, no. So they said he was not foreign. Large penis, not Japanese. Speaking of, they pointed out that he was not circumcised. Hmm. Which, quote, points out, this was actually handwritten in the pathology report by somebody I don't know who, points out excludes Turks, Egyptians, Jews. So. I've often wondered, I've often wondered who the first person to be circumcised was and how the hell it caught on as a fad. I mean, Jesus, obviously. I don't don't know. Whenever I was a kid, little side note, whenever I was a kid, I actually read the stupid sci-fi novel called The Mana Machine, which was about Moses out in the desert and aliens gave him a machine that made manna and every seventh day they had to clean the machine and this machine looked like two balls and a dick right 
And so one they were supposed to clean the machine on the day of the Sabbath because then people wouldn't see them take it apart. Well, one day the machine broke and they had to clean it early. So they saw it uh, take it apart and you had to remove like this sheath over the front of the of the the penis of the machine. And Moses went, okay, y'all saw it. Chop off the ends of your duiners. That's that's what you got to do now. That's as good an explanation as any. <laughs> no more turtlenecks for anyone. <laughs> so there was also no evidence of cerebral hemorrhage or coronary disease. Uh, the pathologist, uh, he said, "This I love these little notes in, in the pathologist report. It's so, aside from the racism and so human, uh, pack... Quote, packet of partly used cigarettes. And then in parentheses, I understand. (laughs) Partially used cigarettes. Was a packet of full cigarettes, but I had a craving. Yeah. I'm sorry I smoked the evidence. So this this pathologist, Professor Cleland, his theory was that this man committed suicide. And he was just looking for somewhere by the sea to lay down and die. And that he he had taken poison, but he took it long before he got there. So I'm going to go ahead and read this entire bit from the pathology report. Um, I think it likely that whatever he took was taken before his arrival at these steps, perhaps an appreciable time. Minutes only, question mark. Before or after this, he had got rid of his m- m- money. Oh, it, he typed Mondi. He, he's like me. He makes typos. <laughs> <laughs> His money and other pocket contents, keeping the cigarettes, overlooking the bus and train tickets, and perhaps the slip of paper. We'll get to that. Though this may have been left by design. The drug begins to make him drowsy before he had got well onto the beach in search of a quiet spot. He was too drowsy to proceed further than the bottom of the steps, reclined with his head against the seawall, and lit a cigarette. This went out before he finished it, note movement scene of his arm, and fell behind the collar of his coat and neck, question mark. No sign of blister on skin or singeing of garment. This guy uses parentheses like I do, like a lot. (laughs) Cleland, though, let's talk for a second about John Burton Cleland, the the doctor doing the forensic examination of this body. This guy uh, proved that dengue fever was transmitted by mosquitoes. Uh... And this guy, if you wanted to have a smart kid, may I strongly suggest a little bit of Cleland sperm in your in your uterus, because you're going to get a smart kid. Are they kid? Huh, you know that too. <laughs> you're going to get a smart kid. Smart kid there. Yeah, smart kid, man. You know, is that the clitlid? Is that what we're talking about? That's Can we just call that the clit? That's whenever a woman's clitoris actually becomes a sentient creature, reaches out to Arnold Schwarzenegger and says, "Open your mind to me." <laughs> oddly so, specific yeah it's 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 a very <laughs> rare condition they had uh him and his wife dora had four daughters and a son they are their children dr margaret burton cleland dr william Patton cleland uh he's a cr- uh, cardiothoracic surgeon uh joan barton cleland uh, she's an ornithologist. Elizabeth Robson Cleland, uh, she's the author of The Hondorf Walkers and the Clelands of Beaumont. And Barbara Burton Cleland, mathematics graduate, 
She also married Professor Andrew John Lenazir. And then there's also Sir Donald McKinnon Cleland, administrator of Papua New Guinea, and son of Elphinstone Davenport Cleveland, because I, I love the fact he named his kid Elphinstone. I do like that. I also think that if I were around the table with all these people at a family gathering, I would be laughing and nodding, pretending I knew what the hell they were talking about, like a lot. So anyway, Margaret takes the from formaldehyde and she holds it up and she says, I said sprocket, not socket. <laughs> oh, how troll. Pass me a cucumber sandwich, crust removed. Nice pulling of the tongue there. That Thank that you. really that made it. Thank you. Thank you very much. We didn't even get towards the end and Scott's already broken. <laughs> I have a lot of trauma I have to deal with and I use humor to cope. <laughs> so that is that is a very accomplished family. I am impressed as hell. I bet there were regular beatings to make people learn. <laughs> so uh, poison, back to the Summerton man. Poison was not detected in his blood or organs in test after test. They looked for ordinary barbiturates, alkaloids, arsenic, and they were able to rule them all out. And they said that uh, HCN, is HCN hydrochloric acid? I meant to look that up. Shit. Uh, eight, no, hydrochloric acid is HCL. HCN, I'm going to look that up. Hydrogen cyanide. Hydrogen, Hydrogen cyanide. cyanide. That's what it is. I, yeah, I just, it was written HCN and cyanides, and so I didn't think that it could be a cyanide because it says cyanide in the next word, but cyanide. cyanide, you wouldn't have those pretty leaves in the fall. You will respect cyanide. Yeah, well, cyanide, they said he would have been dead before he got there. If he if he had taken it himself, It was if it was self-administered, he wouldn't have been able to get to that spot and then not have a, the, the bottle would have had to have been lying around somewhere, so... It would have been have to have been something that kills in a few hours and also doesn't have convulsions as part of its general effects. So, yeah, definitely not any of those poisons. I do sometimes wonder if they were focusing so much on the poisoning idea that they got a little tunnel vision, but it, maybe. Or it could have been a poison that they couldn't yet detect back then. I there was. Mean- a- I mean, you know, it's there's a lot of poisons you can throw in that if I was going to poison somebody, I'd use potassium. And the fact that he's got blood on his collar, that shows that to me says like injection site somewhere on the neck. If he has mm. a freckle, if he has a mole, those make great injection sites. Uh, you, Good point. You inject potassium into the body. It's going to make it look kind of like a, a heart attack, but, you know, potassium is one of those poisons. It's deadly to the human body, but it occurs naturally in the human body. You need potassium. It's it's just like the dosage that does it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the case with a lot of poisons, except that not all of them are actually meant to be in the body. Well, like you said, it, same with the... Uh, some of the other poisons that were brought up that they might not have been able to detect because they decay very quickly, uh, digitalis or strabanthin. So digitalis, it, it is used as a heart medication, but it's another one of those things. Too much is too much. So 
The symptoms of digitalis toxicity are confusion, irregular pulse, loss of appetite. Well, he ate something, so nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, fast heartbeat, vision changes, including blind spots, blurred vision, changes in how colors look or seeing spots, which could explain why the pupils look kind of weird, maybe. Um, Other symptoms may include decreased consciousness, decreased urine output, difficulty breathing when lying down, excessive nighttime urination, and overall swelling. See, that's, that's the thing. Poisons, even though poisons are almost universally fatal, you know, and there are some shared things, not everybody is going to have the same the same symptoms. So loss of appetite, eh, maybe, but not in this guy. Yeah. You know, if especially if this is a military man, if this happens to be a spy, as many people think it was, you know, he might have been so scheduled in his routines. I wake up at 6.30. I do exercises until 7.30. 7.30, I shower until 7.45. At 7.45, I eat my breakfast. It's That is it every day. You know, so even if he wasn't feeling well, say, I must have my breakfast. Where's my juicy fruit? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure he... Juicy, he, juicy fruit for breakfast as an athlete, I bet. <laughs> Back then, it was probably considered a health food. Packed with protein. Yeah. <laughs> and then the fruit, other... Now with radium. <laughs> probably. The other one that was considered, and these were ones that really... In, in in the inquest, when they brought these up, they were like whispered because they didn't want these getting out to the general public as potential ideas. So digitalis was the first one I mentioned, then strophanthin, which I couldn't find a lot about the effects of it on the human body. But in the 40s, it was used to treat animals that were in hypovolemic shock. And that did it didn't start being used on humans in a hospital setting until around the 1950s. So a little bit after the Summerton man's time, it was also used as an arrow poison for mostly animals when hunting, but sometimes actually in battles in East Africa. So dip your dip your arrow in that and shoot away. So the United States today classifies it as an extremely hazardous substance. Uh, It has a half-life of 13 hours when injected and a a longer half-life, about twice that, when it's ingested. It's hard to say ingested after injected. I was sure I was going to get that wrong. Ingested. It went ingested, yes. And so, yeah, that that's it, it does disappear rather quickly by the time they would have gotten to the actually doing the autopsy and trying to test for it. Probably wouldn't have been around, especially by the time they actually think to look for it if they even had a test that could detect it. Now, one thing I found interesting was there's a rat in Africa that eats the bark of the tree that produces strophanthin. And then after it eats the bark, instead of eating the poison, it covers itself in the poison and uses that as a defense against predators. Huh. That is one smart rat. In Pennsylvania, there's a there's a mouse <laughs> covers itself in pine tar from the trees and then runs through campers' fires, causing massive devastation in forest fires. It dies <laughs> doing so, but does it because it's a dick and laughs as its forest burns and points its mousy fingers towards the trees. Fuck you, roars the mouse as it burns to death. <laughs> so... 
they get fingerprints and they send them all over. First, they start in Australia and then they move on to the world. They do the press. They send them to institutions and everything. And there were people who came forward saying, you know, because they, they put photos of the, the man's face in the paper, his, his, his corpse, essentially. And people would say, oh, yeah, I think I know that guy or I'm missing somebody in my life that looks like him. And those people would come forward. They take him to ID the man. And every single one, they were like, oh, no, that's that's not my guy. So. Now, on January 12th, they are directed to a cloakroom at the Adelaide Rail Station. So that would have been, if the tickets were accurate, where the Somerton man departed from the day he died, or the day before, actually, where there was a suitcase that had been hanging out there since November 30th, the day of his travel. It's a brown suitcase. The outside, it's really... Any identifying markings have been completely gotten rid of here. There had been a label on the case. You could see where it had been. That had been taken off. It was fairly new. It was There were very few scratches. See, everything uh, inside, screams spy, doesn't it? A lot, yeah. yeah. There's there's a lot here that screams spy, that screams at, le at the very least traveler. Well, here's uh, the thing. Spies were known. Spies were notorious for cutting the labels out of their suits. Because if... If they were found dead, it made him harder to identify because you couldn't tell where the suit was tailored. Yeah. And then, well, the lack of ID, too, because nobody travels without ID. I don't even go to the gas station without my driver's license. Right. And just the stuff that was in the suitcase screams spy. Yeah, there's some weird, weird shit in here. So they found an orange, orange thread that actually matched the thread that was used to mend the man's pants. They found a stencil kit that someone who was labeling things on, on cargo, like putting the names on cargo, think of a giant wooden box on a ship and think of the, the army style letters there. That's what we're talking about. And so somebody who would be on a merchant ship, maybe meant stenciling things on cargo, a table knife with the handle cut, uh, some items of clothing. I Only one of I didn't get the table knife. Uh, with the handle cut, I I got that the table knife had been cut down itself, so that the blade was sharp and pointed. Oh well, they said the in the in the I think it was I read it in the pathology report. They said the haft cut, and I looked up haft, and it's like the the handle, I guess. Okay. I, yes, I, I mine just says that. modified knife. Ah, interesting. But even the scissors he had were modified to be sharper. Yeah, it's definitely there's there's definitely some modifications to things here. Like uh, it, there were item, more items of clothing found in the suitcase. One of them had a label on it. I don't know what kind of garment it was, but it said Keen. But I think in this case, it was spelled differently than the, the label on his tie. It was K E A N, which is weird. Mm -hmm. And the thing that really jumps out to me is the thread, the orange thread. This mm -hmm. also screams spy to me. Whenever I whenever I see orange thread, and you're thinking, like, this guy is dressed in, like, dark clothing. Why would you want fucking orange thread for any of this? Orange thread because it's easy to see at night whenever you have to stitch yourself up. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Yes. And there's, there's a lot of things, or at least a couple of things here that point towards 
Somerton man actually being an American or at least having spent some time there, there was a coat in the suitcase that had a stitch that was pretty commonly used in America. It was called a feather stitch and really not used in Australia at all. And additionally, another garment in the suitcase was a shirt coat, which was like a longer shirt. You could either tuck it in or try to, I don't know, wear it outside and be fashion forward. Um, and for some, reason, somebody, for some reason, like a shirt coat, you know, something really long that kind of covers up the genitals whenever you're just wearing it. I picture Alec Baldwin drunk wearing a shirt coat. Yeah. I don't know why. It just seems like something he would do. Alec Baldwin, white shirt coat, drunk, bottle of scotch in one hand, a, a brandy glass in the other, fucking in, uh, with black socks on. That makes sense to me. I can see it too. Yeah. I'll so make my dream yeah, it, come true. Somebody actually looked through advertisements in both the United States and Australia, and they found lots and lots of advertisements for shirt coats in American newspapers at the time in the 40s. But in Australia, they didn't really find any except for like one reference to a sh somebody wearing a shirt coat, like, oh, he's trying to bring the American fashion to Australia, but it'll never work. You know, like stop trying to make shirt coat happen. <laughs> you, you wiener, you'll never make shirt coat happen. <laughs> We're pants jackets people here. Welcome to Australia. Yeah. There were also airmail tickets, or sorry, not tickets, but stickers in the suitcase that kind of indicated he was regularly in touch with someone from afar. So he had like essentially stamps for, for airmail that would be used to send mail to several possible different places, but Britain was not one of them. There were special stickers to send to Britain and these were not it. So you could probably rule out that he was keeping in touch with somebody in Britain. Nobody really remembered the person who'd left the suitcase there. And in professor Cleland's report, he says that he believes that the suitcase was left the day that the man took the bus to Somerton and says that the, he, he basically matched the clothes in the suitcase to the clothes that the Summerton man was found in. And he said, yep, they match. They're the same size. The sh the, from pants, slippers, suit coat, shoes, and even the same kind and brand of underwear in between the, he, that was found in the suitcase and that he was found wearing. So pretty damn sure that the suitcase was his. Yeah, I don't think it could have belonged to anybody else. Missing man, yeah. abandoned suitcase. Yeah. 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 And this is somebody who was very, he was, they called him particular in his dress. He was, he was pretty regimented, kind of like hinting towards what Scott says about somebody with a very strict schedule. Everything was very neat and clean in his suitcase. And even after traveling, his shoes weren't really like scuffed. Like maybe he just took the bus to Somerton and even had just gotten them shined before he ended up on the beach. So definitely something a little off there. But yeah, he was very particular and very neat and tidy man. This is a man who knows where his towel is. Exactly. So when Cleland is looking around, he's the one that finds... The thing, the thing that makes this mystery even more mysterious. So, the thing. The dun, thing. Dun, dun. It's just a book. 
<laughs> well, so you say just a book, but I've got stuff. So in the man, are you trying pants, to say that it's the Bible? No, no, no. I've got, I've got a whole thing. We'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> so in the man's pants that he was actually was it, it was the pants he was wearing, right. That yeah. have the, the thing in the pocket. Okay. The pants he was wearing, there was a secret, they called it a secret pocket that was sewn into the waistband. But there are some people that theorize that it may have just been like specifically made for you to put a pocket watch in, but they didn't find a pocket watch. They found a very tiny rolled up piece of paper. And when you unrolled it, you found that it read Tamam should, which, and not like scribbled or anything, but a, a fancy typeset, like maybe you'd find in a book, kind of ornamental typeset. And this did befuddle them for a little while until a reporter actually pointed out to the police. He was like, you guys need to check out Omar Khayyam's Rubaiyat. And they were like, what now, huh? He's like, it's a book. They have and words they in them. him and called him a nerd. <laughs> exactly. Book. Nerd, get him! So this is a 12th century poetry book by Omar Khayyam. I've actually read this. It's it's quite good. It's very... Uh, of course uh, you have, Christy. I, I like yeah. it. Yeah. No, seriously, of course you have, Christy. <laughs> of course I have, Christy. Of course I have, Christy. Now, Omar Khayyam was a Persian mathematician, philosopher, and poet. And this, there was a translation of this book that was done by Edward Fitzgerald, who was an English poet. Now, that translation was done in 1859. And it said that this kind of really, really gained in popularity in Australia around World War II. Well, they said during the war, and I just assume they meant the most recent one. They said during the war years. And I'm like, well, I mean, there was, there was a couple of that we, we as humans are really good at that. <laughs> But the thing is, is I did do a quick look up on the Trove, uh, which is the Australian collection of newspapers, kind of similar to our Library of Congress uh, digital humanities collection. And it, it was definitely read and known about in Australia. How popular it was, I don't know. But before the Summerton Man came along in the 1910s, 1920s, there were references to it and even references to the, those exact words, Tamam should. Like somebody wrote in and said, oh, Tamam should, here's what it means. And we'll get to what it means in a minute. But I wanted to point out that in November 1927, this is a total coincidence, but I think it's weird, okay? There were two, there was an article that was published in two Australian papers. This was the Eastern Recorder of Kellerberin, uh, Western Australia, and another paper from Western Australia that is, I don't know if you guys are ready for this, but the Avon Argus and Cunderdin Meckerine Tamman Mail. You practiced that for hours, didn't you? I did, I did not. I read it in my head once and I also typed it out like three times because I kept on screwing it up. I did type it a couple times because I actually was making sure that those were all like close to each other. I think these papers shared resources. Uh, they're like an hour away from each other at most 20 minutes at the least so um but that is all the way on the other side of the country uh, of australia it's about 1600 miles from adelaide but there is an article published by someone using the nom de plume and they even put it in quotes tamam should mm, that is a little odd that is a little odd i will say that 
I yeah. did find that odd. It's also an odd article, but it, I assure you, I can almost definitely assure you, has nothing to do with this case because it is, unless this man was a little, uh, uh, we'll, we'll go with whimsical, I okay. guess. Um, so I'll just give you some little bits and pieces. I'm just waiting for it to load here. Uh, so 11th November, 1927. It is, uh, it seems like it's maybe an ongoing thing. It's the Sand Plain Nightly Entertainments is kind of the, the major heading. And then the subheading is Jack and Jill. And then it has the, the verses of Jack and Jill. And then just fancy a boy, Jack, and a girl, Jill, going up a hill for a pail of water. They could not have been going to a river for the water or they would have gone down the hill to get it. There is no mention here of ages, of course. We can take it, therefore, that they may have been anywhere between five and ninety-five. Not many Jills or Jacks live past that age. For the sake of simplicity, the contentions which are to follow, let us say that X years, from five years to 95 years, and then we have settled defini definitely in good algebraical, algebraical manner on a fixed age for both Jack and Jill. We have it now then that Jack's age is X years and Jill's is X years. Therefore, Jill, Jack and Jill are both the same age. What the hell is this bullshit? Oh, it keeps going. There are many boys of X years of age who own motorcycles with pillion seats attached and who give rise to young ladies what of X years old. What the fuck is happening? Even now. And sometimes they fall. Always the lady coming after the gentleman. A very natural order of events. I remember one philosopher, X years old, saying that woman was made after man and has been made after him ever since. Not Carlisle. This was the case with Jack and Jill. <laughs> it goes on and on. Oh my it's fucking God. No, so much no bullshit. more. No more. <laughs> I know a guy who will remain nameless, but I know a guy who talks like this. And just, Jesus fucking Christ, I have to put up with this so often. I don't need it now. <laughs> he goes on to be talk about how Jack should have gotten a car instead so he could have gotten away from Jill if she proved to be of the undesirable sort. Uh, and so on and so on. We get we have more X years old and X years old. And had this whole series of events been reversed, just think of the tale it would have been. And I'm going to see this guy tomorrow, and I'm going to say to him, Tamim should, and I'm going to see what he <laughs> says. I just want to see how he reacts, because I think he may be the Somerton man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. It was very, very... Weird. I'm almost certain that it has nothing to do with this, but it just struck me as a very strange thing for that somebody to use that as their nom de plume, and also in Australia. So yeah, that that happens unfortunately for for humanity as a whole. So that just just so everybody knows that that did happen, and it's weird. So let's get back to the actual rubiat and these words. Tamam should. So. Most English versions of the Rubiat end with these words. Uh, they mean, most, most sources are like, they mean it is ended, but like many languages, they can have different meanings. Some of them similar could be, it is completed. Com uh, just the word entirely is one possible translation. The end, like the end of a book. So all those have different connotations and ideas, but they definitely found in the pocket of a, of a dead man who died mysteriously are quite curious. So the police tried to match up the print on the scrap of paper they found with different versions and editions of the book 
And they couldn't find any until July when this happened. A man, this is so weird. A man comes in and he's like, look, right after the body was found, I was at Somerton Beach with my brother-in-law. We were in a car and my brother-in-law found a book lying on the, the floor in the back and it was the Rubaiyat. Rubiat. I don't know if I'm saying it right ever. Um, read it. Can't pronounce it. So, and they both just kind of were like, it must be the other guys. They put it in the glove box and they forgot about it until they saw a page or, or an article in the paper that mentioned that the, it was there in the man's pocket. And they were like, oh, hmm. And it just so happened that the last page where these words would have been was partly torn out. Although it just occurred to me, what if they were fucking with the police? What if they found like a copy of... <laughs> <laughs> they were like, let's tear out the last page and tell them we found it in the car. Let's do it. We'll fuck with them. <laughs> we're going to obstruct justice. Let's go. Good times. So, but if, if this, this, likely this was a real thing that happened. And so the, this book was examined very closely. There was a phone number uh, on, the, on the inside of the back cover. And it was written on top of some words that were written below it. So layered, you know, somebody wrote some words and then later they wrote a phone number over top. And so this is one of those things that I don't know where to put it. So I'm just going to kind of insert it in the middle of us continuing to talk about the Rubiet. They buried the man, the Somerton man, because they were like, he's going to decompose. We got to get him buried. Uh, But more information popped up. They really actually worked to make sure that they could do something in the future, which is so commendable. They poke embalmed... him. He's going to be squishy. <laughs> Amber, poke him. <laughs> <laughs> you know you would. I fucking would. In a heartbeat. She, she totally would. So they embalmed him. They did plaster casts of his head and his torso, and they put him in a concrete sealed grave. And until 1978, somebody had been in intermittently laying flowers at his grave. So that's interesting. So they, you know, in the midst of trying to figure out this book and the phone number and all that, they buried him. Then they call the phone number in the book. It's not listed. So they call it and they find out that it belongs to a nurse who they tried to keep obvious. They called her Justin. Uh, her name ended up being either Joe or Jessica Thompson. And she's like, well... Actually, now that you mentioned the Ruby Yacht, yeah, uh, I was friendly with a guy back in the Warriors. His name was Alfred Boxall, and I gave him a copy of it. And ah. like, okay, Alfred Boxall. Alfred Boxall. And what did Alfred Boxall do? Oh, he worked for intelligence in the war. Uh, he was still alive at this time, so that was he was definitely not the guy. <laughs> he was also a diver. Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alfred Boxall spent months on board a ship called uh, the Hurricane, one of six boats he spent a lot of time on. And uh, he was noted for his abilities. He was a noted diver and motorbike enthusiast. And remember, those are two things. Like You're not thinking like motorbike has a lot to do with your calves and your toes. Yeah, on the balancing, you can really bust up your toes if you fall off a motorbike. Plus, being a diver, like I said, a lot of toe strength and a lot of calf strength used in diving. 
It's just weird that you say motorbike when motorbike was mentioned in that bizarre article. It's just weird. Yeah. Yeah. Jack and Jill. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a little weird. Okay. Interesting that he was a diver. Yeah. He was alive and he still had the book uh, that the nurse had given him and it, the last page was intact. So that was kind of like, okay. But she did report. She was like, well, there was this guy that was coming around my house and asking around about me, but I didn't know who, who he was. So they were like, okay, well, here's a cast of the dead man's face. Do you recognize him? And she was, they say she looked absolutely freaked. They thought she might actually pass out. And so she appears to have known him, but she said, absolutely not. I've never met that man in my life, which is, that can, I, I personally think that can go either two ways. Either the person who looked at the situation and said, oh, she definitely knows him no matter what she says is correct. Or they were reading too much into the situation and, and seeing what they wanted to see. Yeah. Uh, no, I think she knew who it was. I really do. I do too. I agree with you. And we'll, we'll definitely get to some stuff later that uh, gets into that. So they're back to the Rubiot and they're like, okay, so let's take a look at this. So they, they able, you know, the phone number is taken care of. So they're like, let's get to the letters. So they send some, the, the letters to some cipher experts with the Naval intelligence, which is supposed to be like one of the best in the world. They put it in the papers and the Navy is like, well, this is, this is what we've come up with. It's unbreakable, but due to the frequency of some letters, it's probably English and possibly poetry. And this is where my brain breaks because, all right, I read a book uh, a year or two back called The Woman Who Smashed Codes, a true story of love, spies, and the unlikely heroine who outwitted America's enemies it's written by Jason Fagoni, and I highly recommend it if you're interested in not just cryptography and, uh, you know, spies and intelligence and all that, but even if you're just interested in literature, because it starts off with them trying to find codes in Shakespeare's work, and I was so happy. Um, but it is about a woman named Elizabeth Smith Friedman. And this, as soon as I started thinking about a code on the back of a book of poetry, my brain immediately pinged to this. And then when the naval intelligence said possibly poetry, I was like, holy shit. I, and I can't possibly be the first person who's thought of this. But in that book, they talk about many types of codes. But two of the ones that are mentioned that are germane here are a book cipher and a running key cipher. Both of these are codes that use a book as a key, usually a particular edition because both of them have to be exactly the same. It has to be the same words on the same pages, etc. So you, you have to make the code using the book and the person on the other end who's deciphering it has to use the book. A, a book cipher is word by word. So words within the code will correspond with words in the book. And a running key cipher, I'm not an expert in this, but if I have this right, a running key cipher is letter by letter. So this has a couple of advantages, especially in espionage. You don't have to use like a spy book. You don't have to use an actual code book. You can use a book that just looks like something that anyone would have. It's innocent looking. It doesn't basically like announce to the world that it's a key to a cipher. Uh, one thing is that you have to pick the right type of book for your purposes. So 
in a book cipher, especially you're using the words themselves. So you need to have that book needs to have the words that you're going to need to use in your messages. Like for an espionage thing, you might use a suspense novel. If you're using, you know, a cipher in an affair because you're both, you know, dorky and duplicitous, you might use a romance novel. And so this really hit me having that code be right on the book. Now, as for running key messages, the War Department actually thought at one time, the War Department of the United States thought at one time that they were indecipherable, but they were not. And Elizabeth Friedman and her husband, William, who is the, the book I'm talking about is about, they were actually able to sit, solve these kinds of ciphers without even having the book in hand or, or having read it. That's kind of they fucking solve- impressive. Isn't it amazing? And they would be able to solve it and they'd, they'd be able to give a description, at least at the very least genre, maybe like subgenre, you know, that, you know, it, if they know enough about tropes, they would probably be like, oh, it probably has like wind in the title. <laughs> so, yeah, really, really crazy how good they were at this. And so I'm just thinking, is it possible that the book is the key all along that particular edition of the Rubiot? is the key to deciphering the code. And it, especially it, the, the, the Naval Department saying it's you know possibly poetry really leads me to think because the Rubiot is poetry, they would have to match up in like, you know, general word length and a lot of different characteristics. That really makes me think and wonder, has anybody tried the Rubiot? They have to have. It's been 72 years. There have been millions of people born and lived and died who were way smarter than me who, who Somebody has to thought of this, right? Let's- I'm sure. I'm sure they have. But but here's what I want to say. This guy's a spy. I'm I'm convinced of it. There is no way that he wrote it in the book that's the key. He did that to throw people off. The real book is probably like uh, Stephen King. I don't I don't know who was popular back then. But like Gone the, with wind. Yeah, it, the real book is probably something that is so different, just to like be ridiculous. Yeah, you're probably absolutely right uh, on that. I, I agree. <laughs> like, I'm probably being a little too simplistic about it. But well, and, really... and here's the thing: there are there are other people that know exactly what this says, but they're never going to tell anybody else. Yeah, or at least there has yeah. been one person throughout history, at least one person who knows exactly what this said and never told anybody else. Yeah, there, but there's, I mean, there's tons of codes like that. It's, you know, you have substitution ciphers like, like we have here. Yeah, there's, it, it was probably, it was probably something that used like a one-time code and then they tore that sheet of paper off and burned it. But if it's in a book, you can ostensibly, in theory at least, find another edition that has that last page. It's not like that last page is the only one that's in existence, which to me makes me lean more towards Amber's idea that this was a misdirection. It it was essentially to make somebody think exactly what I'm thinking right now and then waste all of their time trying to match that code up to the Rubiots. Really? Should have been looking in the Torah. I fell for it. You know so, what, though, if I'm not mistaken, there's a lot of ciphers that actually use like Bibles and Torahs because that's the book that everybody has. Hell yeah. If those are all spies stay in motels, what does every yeah. motel have? 
a Bible. Yeah, but the thing the thing is, is that they have to be if it's a book cipher. And even, yeah, probably same with the running key cipher. It has to be the same edition. So you got to make sure that the, uh, who is it? The, uh, who leaves the Bibles in hotels? Seventh-day Adventist? group is it? The Gideons. Okay. You got to make sure that the Gideons are leaving all the same edition. If you get to your hotel and you check in and it's an eighth edition and you're trying to decode something that was made with the seventh edition, you fucked. Yeah, but like... I, I agree with that, but I, I think it'd be easy enough because that's something so innocuous that everybody has in their house, or at least a lot of people have in their house. Oh yeah, you, Bibles have definitely been used a lot. It just there needs to be needs to make sure that both sides have the same one, unless you're the Freedmans, in which case you don't need any books. You just need your giant brains. Yay! <laughs> so okay, that was my whole thing. I had a, a light bulb went on over my head. I was like looking through my copy of of the woman who smashed codes, which again, read it so good. Let's get and... this over to the Reddit Bureau of Investigation. See what they can do with it. <laughs> I'm sure that they've already looked at it over in Unresolved Mysteries many times. So that's a subreddit that I like to pour through at times. Um, okay, so that's my stuff. So in 1958, 10 years after the Summerton Man was found, the coroner publishes the final report, and it states, we, we can't identify him, we can't determine how he died, and we can't determine cause of death. So basically, this was a, a, a single page, and it had... A, in, in giant font written on the front and on this one page, we know shit. <laughs> we know shit. Well, we ain't found shit. How about they were quoting Spaceballs long before it was it was made. <laughs> so my favorite part of Spaceballs, by the way, we ain't found shit. That is one of my favorites too. I love it when I'm looking for something and Jackson's like, "Have you found it yet?" Oh yeah, you know that that, that quote comes out. <laughs> we ain't found shit. So. But there were tons of theories, of course, and there have been in the past many, many years. Theories that he was a spy who was killed by enemies, as we've mentioned. Now, one of the supposed pieces of evidence for this particular theory is that Adelaide was only 300 miles away from a rocket testing base at Woomera. Woomera? I don't know. Um, But even today... By car, that's five hours away, and still to this day, there's no public transportation route available for that if Google Maps is is not lying to me. So it seems like a little, I don't know, it seems like a little far to go and have somebody maybe follow you and poison you. Like, I'm not entirely sure about that. Five hours is, number one, that's dedicated to follow somebody for five hours. Number two, if you are a spy and you don't know somebody's been following you for the last five hours, fucking shame on you. I agree with that. I agree with that. But also, does anyone remember, like, I don't know if it was James Bond or what, where the, the spies had, like, the t- the fake tooth that, that they could, like, kick out and bite down on to poison themselves, like the cyanide capsule? I'm sure that oh, would yeah, have yeah. showed up in in the autopsy. They would have seen that fake tooth. Well, well, some weirdnesses with his teeth. There's some weirdnesses with his teeth we'll get to um, very soon. So, but first, uh, just a couple little bits. Some other theories that, uh, again, like I said, that he, the, the mismatched cigarettes explain the whole thing because he was poisoned through tobacco. But, like, if somebody was like, we're going to replace his cigarettes with poison cigarettes, I think he would notice if they weren't his brand. 
You know, you'd replace them with his brand. Hey, so that was a little weird. Free cigarettes are free cigarettes. That yeah. is true. Uh, Amber knows. Yep. <laughs> so, <laughs> and since then, okay. There's been no identical copy of the Rubiot found since then. Uh, there was one found that was very close and had the same cover, but it was shaped a little differently. So it wasn't quite the same edition. Now, this one was found in 1945. So before the Summerton Man, three years before he was found. But it was in Ashton Park, Sydney. It was a Jewish immigrant by way of Somalia who had been found dead. And his name was George Marshall. It was ruled a suicide by poisoning. He had the Rubiot on him. It was the seventh edition. Now here's where it gets a little weird. Seventh edition. But they looked into it and they were like, this version only has five editions. The publishing company only put out five. But somebody kind of debunked that. They were like, well, yeah, that company only put out five regular editions. But they put out several editions that were miniature versions, and they didn't bother registering those with any copyright libraries. So that kind of explained that. Super one, secret spy edition of the Rubiot. Yeah. Uh, the, the one bit that was marked in the copy found on George Marshall's body was one of my favorite. It's a beautiful line. Ah, uh, make the most of what we yet may spend before we too into the dust descend, dust into dust, and under dust to lie, sans wine, sans song, sans singer, and sans end. So am, interesting am I what he chose to mark. Now? I mean, you can if, if the spirit moves you, Scott. <laughs> I got a little golf clap. I'm happy with it. There we go. So that was a little weird there and then we have uh the woman known as justin the nurse that we talked about she was identified eventually as either joe or jessica thompson i think most sources said joe so i'm gonna go with that now she died but they tracked down her son he was uh, a man named robin and he was born in 1947 so one year before the Summerton man died he bears some resemblance to the Summerton man. They both have the same little weird quirk with their ears. They're both missing incisor teeth and both have two canines adjacent to the front teeth. And I, from two different articles, I got two different probabilities. So get ready. Uh, the experts say that if this is a coincidence, it's a one in 10,000 chance and then other experts say that just based on these particular features being passed down, there's a 99% probability that they're related. Hmm. Yeah. So Robin, his mama decided that he was going to be, what do you call a male ballerina? I guess uh, a male ballerina. Uh, a brolerina. A, a brewlerina. I like that. I was going to go with a ballet man. Okay. <laughs> I'm not creative at all. And so, yeah, his mother took him to ballet lessons and was very insistent on this. And he ended up becoming a professional dancer. And the man who kind of put a lot of this together, uh, his name is Derek Abbott. He is a professor of engineering at the University of Adelaide. 
And he actually spent six years trying to crack the code that was found on that copy of the Rubaiyat. So probably at some point he actually tried to compare it to the Rubaiyat and I am in no way the genius that I thought I was for about three and a half seconds today. And he came to the conclusion that it's not really so much a code so much as it's just like each letter is just the first letter of a word in the English language. So maybe, you know, like a grocery list, you know, you write an E for eggs, you write a C for chicken, you write another C for chips. And how you keep that straight, I don't know. I was going to say, you do ECC, eggs, chicken, and chips. I'm coming back with elephant steaks, fucking (laughs) corn dogs, and cat food. That's what we have to live on now because of your stupid fucking grocery list. <laughs> I know I've told the story before, but Jackson could really uh, be quite the cipher maker because he can't even read his own handwriting sometimes. He once called me from the grocery store and said, do we need anything that starts with an M? Because I've got this thing that starts with an M on the grocery list and I can't read it. And I was like, I mean, it's obviously mayonnaise. No, I was like, you wrote the list. <laughs> Yeah, it's mayonnaise. It, mayonnaise written it, in cursive? No. Indecipherable. What was it? It was soda. Wow. Yeah, his handwriting is that bad. It wasn't even Mountain <laughs> Dew, was it? Nope, nope. It was like the word soda, but it looked like it started with an M. <laughs> wow. That's pretty bad. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a reason why I did all the writing when we did, uh, did bar trivia back in the day. So, okay. Back to this uh, potential family member of the Somerton man, potential son. Uh, So Derek Abbott put all this together, and then he eventually found that Robin had a daughter named Rachel. Now, we got a lot of R's coming up here. Rachel uh, was was born to Robin and uh, Roma, and they had her, they adopted her out, so they're her biological parents. And now growing up, Rachel didn't know that she was adopted, but she knew that she was a little different from her family, and she knew that she loved dance and ballet. There it is again. There it is again. And so her biological mother finally tracked her down, and her biological mother had been in the Australian ballet. That is something. Hmm. She got pregnant with Rachel while dancing in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like an 80s love song. Dancing in New Zealand. (laughs) Baby, I love that summer feeling. When we're dancing in New Zealand, we get lots of action. Look, it's Peter Jackson dancing in New Zealand. (laughs) Very well done. Thank you. So, uh, so this, this professor, Derek Abbott, he tracks down Rachel. And at first he's asking, he writes her a letter asking about the Somerton man. And then they exchange some more correspondence. They find out that they actually have a lot in common. And he comes out to, to see her and interview her about the Somerton man. And th- then by the end of the week, he comes out for a weekend. By the end of the weekend, he had proposed. Yeah. That he was really uh, married to the job. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Now, I just want to say 
this is a thing that happened in my head whereupon uh, I was really glad that I, I was confused because when I was uh, doing this research, it was the end of a, a long day, a long week, really. And my brain was just a little bit, just a little bit broken. And so especially with all these R names flying around, you've got Robin, you've got Rachel, you've got Roma, and then Derek Abbott. And I'm not entirely sure that the pronouns were pointing to the correct antecedents. Excuse me, my goodness. Yes, yes the second time I've living it in. <laughs> That's fine. Go ahead. And um, so when I read skimmed more like it uh for it, it, at least at first i read it more closely a minute later when i first read that paragraph i thought that robin was still alive had tracked down his uh, biological daughter and proposed to her <laughs> i wish whoa. i had taken a picture of my face <laughs> whoa i was sitting here like no oh no 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 and then i read a little bit more and i was like Oh no, it's the it's the researcher dude. Okay. Oh, that's fine. I don't care. <laughs> Other people in the article were disapproving and I was like, well, it could be worse. Incest is tasty with some A1 sauce. So So yes, uh they are they are married and they have children now. Uh he Derek Abbott has tried to get twice uh the Somerton man exhumed so that he can do some tests on the DNA and compare it to Rachel's. He was denied both of those times, but we have a couple of bright spots here. In 2017, he found some hairs on one of the busts that they made that might be good for DNA extraction. And in 2019, South Australia Attorney General Vicky Chapman gave conditional approval for an exhumation. So that was November of 2019, almost a year ago. We could have an update on this at some point. They okay. did. I Go just ahead. want to throw out, do you have what the detective, uh, detective Jerry said about all this? Yeah, I was still uh, just relieved that it wasn't her father. So go ahead. So I love this because detective Jerry goes, I just couldn't believe it. And I thought, what the hell is going on here? Has this guy married this girl just to try and pursue his DNA subject? <laughs> yes. That quote was part of the reason that I realized that I, my brain had gone in a, the wrong and most horrible direction possible. So, yeah. Uh, and they have looked at Rachel's DNA. If she is, in fact, related to the Summerton man, then he is from America. He has a big group of relatives and, and uh, ancestors in Virginia, including some Native American ancestry and a genetic connection to Thomas Jefferson. Hmm. He didn't so. look black. <laughs> so I, I really like the quote from Derek Abbott regarding his connection to the Somerton man. He said, I have the children I love and might not have existed if it wasn't for him. I really liked that. And then even more recently, and uh, in, in relation to some current events we've all been suffering through for uh, time has no meaning now, there was a virtual reality specialist named Daniel Voshart. He did some work for Star Trek Discovery. I Voshart'ed my and pants. Knew that was coming. Well, Star uh, Trek Discovery. Has anybody been watching Star Trek Discovery? No. It's rough. It's rough. And what were you expecting whenever... Okay, so it's like uh, ST, TNG is Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, 
STTOS, Star Trek, the original series. I don't like the fact that you guys gave this thing the initials STD. <laughs> uh, Amber, you remember Vampire Diaries? Yes. We would have VD night every Thursday. VD night. VD night. <laughs> I even had you guys in a, in a group on my phone. It was VD. <laughs> or the VD gang or something like that. The VD girls. VD girls. Remember to and be yeah. sure to tell all your former partners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I I really ring ring ring. I'm I'm really sorry to tell you this. I know it's been a while since we talked, but I, I have to admit, um, uh, I I watched Vampire Diaries. I got an old case of the crackling crotch. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, uh, this Daniel Beauchart, who is a virtual reality specialist, he got together with uh, Derek Abbott and a U.S. genealogist named Colleen Fitzpatrick. And they used a combination of the busts that were made of the Somerton man, some descriptions that were made of his appearance for, you know, the autopsy and such like that, and autopsy photos. And they made a digital recreation of what the Somerton man may have looked like. And it's kind of creepy to look at, but he's it, he's fairly handsome, but I, I think he looks a little Russian, guys. <laughs> have you seen this? I yes. have not. Let me let me pull it up for Scott. Okay. But I should say the reason I say that this is uh, germane to current events is because the reason Daniel Beauchard even got into this in the first place is because he had some free time thanks to the pandemic. That's why God let the pandemic happen. So thanks, could, COVID. So we could solve the Summerton Man case. There you go. There he is. Yeah, I see it. He just has a little bit of a Russian look. Yes, he does. I don't know. I don't know. Like, in some pictures I can see, like, yeah, maybe he looks a little Russian. Then in other pictures I'm like, he looks like a European mutt that's an American. The problem, that's also true. Yeah. The problem is, the picture we have of him is him lying down in death. And probably dead long enough that rigor mortis has set in and left. So all the muscles in the face, even whenever you're sleeping, even whenever you're sleeping, those muscles don't permanently relax. You know, they don't, they don't kind of pop away and until ultimate looseness until, until, you know, the, the dirt nap, the big sleep, the big sleep, the dirt nap, picking turps with a stepladder. So whenever somebody's dead and lying on their back, you're never going to get an accurate picture of what they looked like in life. Okay, true, but they had a genealogist just involved. Yeah. They're very much able to tell, you know, via a combination of, of things, how this person might have looked. And if they exhumed him already and had the DNA available, I don't know. It didn't really say whether they, they used anything about the DNA. It, it didn't say anything about that. But, you know, that can give you some markers of, of what particular features a person might have. And also he was described pretty vividly in the in the autopsy and pathology reports so that's just that's my thing but okay so that that is actually all i have do you guys have anything else i do yay i have a lot of people that are claiming they saw things okay me like happy cool things like tits no well oh. i'm sure they did also at some point in their lifetime see tits just didn't mention it yeah hmm. um so there was a receptionist at the hotel nearest the spot where the body was found claiming that they saw a strange man 
who was staying in the hotel at the same time of Somerton's death, carrying a black case with a long needle inside. Um, like a, like a little, I'm very confused. A, if it was, how did she know there was a needle inside? X-ray vision or? Well, she didn't, she didn't say like briefcase. It was a black case. So it was probably like a, a long black, like leather case is what I was imagining. Some, I'm imagining like, uh, my dad carried one. It wasn't leather. It was, I've actually still got it. Um, he carried a little case with him and like, I've seen like in older movies, like people who happen to be like diabetic or would take some sort of medication intravenously, they take it in a little case. So it might've been a thing. She saw him pop, pop this open and needle come out. Yeah. It was just something a little weird and a little fun. Um, I also got the final string of letters in in the code. It's believed to stand for it's time to move to South Australia, Mosley Street. Interesting. Mm. Because um, Justin that we talked about lived mm -hmm. on Mosley Street. Oh, so somebody deciphered the code to mean that. Yeah, there was, there's like a, I guess a group of people that think that might be what just that last line is. They didn't really get the rest of it. Hmm. Did we get into Kate Thompson in 60 minutes? Uh, no, not yet. Okay. If you want to take that, because it sounded like you had something about Kate Thompson in 60 minutes. Uh, no, I had one more on Justin. I think, is that how we're saying her name? Justin? Sure. I don't know. Yeah, but, don't know. Um, but it was actually said that uh, somebody claimed to have seen the Somerton man knocking on the nurse's door on Mosley Street the day before he died. So that could be the, the kind of vague reports that she had of, oh, some guy was knocking on, like, you know, doors around my house looking for me. That could be the actual specific report about that that somehow ended up getting vaguer and vaguer in every report I read. Yeah, because, like, the, the one that I have is that, like, nobody at the train station or anybody where the stubs were from remembered seeing him. But somebody had seen him knocking on the door of the nurse on Mosley Street. She didn't answer. And then he walked towards Somerton Beach. And that's where his story kind of ends hmm. or begins, depending on which way you want to look at it. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, now I have here and I found this is like a nice little coda. And in November of 2013, relatives of Justin uh, gave interviews to the to the program 60 Minutes. There was a Kate Thompson. Now, she's the daughter of Jessica and Prosper Thompson. She said that her mother was the inner was the woman who was interviewed by the police who they said yeah she looked a little shaken whenever she saw the bus you know that woman she said her mother had lied to the police that she did know the identity of the Somerton man and that his identity was quote known to a level higher than the police force um she suggested that her mother and the Somerton man were both spies saying that her mom taught English to migrants, was interested in communism, and could speak Russian. 
Oh my. So Kate Thompson would have been Robin's like either, you know, like, like half sister then. Yes. Yes. Wow. That is fascinating. That is really fascinating, especially to have family members coming out with stuff like that. I want to watch that 60 minutes now. So, all right. Is that, is that everything then? I think that is all for my stuff. I think that's all we got on my end too. Okay. Did all right. So wait, can, can I ask? What do you guys think it was? Oh, that's an excellent question. Uh, somebody else go first. <laughs> he was a spy. There, there's two. Here's the thing. Uh, Chrissy's going to appreciate this, but if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, dies like a <laughs> duck, and has the clothes ripped out and the tags ripped out of its clothes like a duck, it's a fucking duck. Um, <laughs> there's just too much. There's too much going on here. Uh, there, there was a case uh, a while back where a guy committed suicide. They ne- and they don't know who he is, but they know he wasn't a spy because none of the stuff lines up. It's just a guy who, whenever they opened him up, he was fucking riddled with cancer and he wanted to go to someplace nobody knew, him, knew of him and die. And he clicks in with a fake name. Once again, Thinking Sideways did a great podcast on that. Check out the entire fucking catalog of theirs. But there's too much tags missing from the clothes. Uh, strange pockets, chemicals, fucking codes. This is a, this is either a spy or it's somebody who has the delusions of being a spy. You want to know what I think? Yes. Yes. I think it was made to look like a spy because it was like a a guy that looked enough like the spy that he was like, I'm going to kill this guy and switch, like switch people. Ooh. I, I do like that. I do like that. Okay, I, I found a homeless theory. guy. He he looks enough like me. I need to disappear for a minute. Here we go. That's <laughs> that's that's interesting. There is a, there is a rumor uh, that the cop who was killed uh, by Lee Harvey Oswald um, is actually the body that people see whenever uh, the cop the cop's name is J D Tippett. And there's, uh, there's a theory that whenever you're seeing JFK lying dead on the morgue table, that it's actually J.D. Tippett's body. Hmm. And that he was killed because he bore just enough of a resemblance to JFK to, to, uh, to pass for him. I mean, it does. I'm not saying that was done in JFK's case, but in the, the case of the Somerton man, I'd, I'd say that's a strong possibility because there there's yeah there's a lot of evidence that points towards him being a spy but there's also questions we had like why was he being if he was such a great spy why didn't he catch on that he was being followed or maybe he was just a bad spy and questions about you know the fact that it's been all these years and hang on a second no 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 stop it (laughs) bad spy bad spy (laughs) That's fine. I mean, I was scratching the new couch, so I had to stop him. I'm out of the studio and on the couch because my back hurts. Um, so, But doesn't that make more sense, though? If it was the spy that was following the homeless guy that he was going to have stand in as his body double, like that would make more sense that the, like, the homeless guy has no idea how to know that people are following him, but the spy is probably really good at following people. And then you have things like the fact that the two items of his clothing that were actually labeled had different 
names on them, like the, the same name spelled differently, Keen, but one was an E and one wasn't. So somebody wasn't really super paying attention or two people working together and, you know, the right hand doesn't know exactly what the left hand is doing. And they, they're like, oh, let's put the name Keen on there. So everybody thinks it's Keen, but they both spell it differently. I'm there just saying. Go. So, yeah, I like that theory. That that definitely, hmm, that's going to keep me up tonight. <laughs> I literally just that. made it up about 15 minutes ago. <laughs> I like it. Good job. All right. Well, we would love, love to hear what you think about this case. Who was the Somerton man? What was the Somerton man? How did he die? Why did he die? And you can come talk to us about that on our Facebook page, on our Twitter, and on our Instagram. We are old-timey, crimey in all three of those places. You can also always, anytime, email us at oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. Don't forget about our merch. Uh, oldtimeycrimey.redbubble.com if you want you know, a uh, I listen to filthy words, socks, you know, stuff like that. So we have lots of uh, some, some fun items there. And I'll, I'll probably over the next uh, couple of weeks, maybe uh, add another design or two if I come up with some stuff or transcribe Scott's raisin rant. <laughs> <laughs> so there is all of that and uh, other podcasts uh, that you can listen to. Uh, I'm over on Detectives by the Decade. Uh, the last episode before my holiday break just dropped today, which in uh, in your world is last week. So if you haven't listened to that, go listen to that. And also short stories, short podcast. Scott, do you want to do you want to flog your podcast? Uh, We've never done it, that. Why? It's just <laughs> it's just like a horrible. Do like, you like murder or do you like Transformers? Yes. Do you like both? Like, Check out all of Scott's stuff. Yeah, it, like it's so far away from what I'm doing here. Right. I guess what? if you happen to like Transformers and vague racism, come on over to Good Morning Cybertron. We we do have. I see in the Podbean, we do have people who are are fans of both podcasts. So if there's crossovers from uh, people crossing over from Good Morning Cybertron to this, then they there might be people who cross over from here to Good Morning Cybertron, isn't it? I'd say it's entirely possible. So uh, I'm sorry that we've never done that. I uh, don't know why. That's okay. It's probably because you told me never to listen to it. Yeah, pretty much so. It's horrible. <laughs> so I will blame it all on you. It's horrible, but in a very entertaining way. So basically Scott's entire ethos. Yeah, horrible, but in a very entertaining way. Yeah, here, believe it or not, for this podcast, I kind of rein it in. Uh, yeah, he, he actually does. No, he does. Yeah, I don't know that that's entirely true. I believe that Christy reins you in. Yeah, that is also that is also true. Yeah, I do. <laughs> okay, for this podcast, I do kind of rein it in. Uh, for Good Morning Cybertron, no, I don't. So, if you want unfiltered, <laughs> not from Concentrate Scott. <laughs> go over to good morning cybertron so yeah that's the, uh the, the scott of old-timey crimey apologizes for the scott you're going to see on good morning cybertron the scott <laughs> on good morning cybertron does not give a fuck about your feelings so and you know what we all need to be the scott from good morning cybertron sometimes <laughs> honestly we all i i honestly feel it. every once in a while not all the time we need to give a fuck about other people's feelings like a good portion of the time, but we all need at least an hour a week of being the Scott from Good Morning Cybertron who does not give a fuck about your feelings. I like that. So, 
All right. Uh, that's all my bullshit. Uh, if I have anything else, I honestly am too uh, tired to care at this point. And I think everybody's just tired of, of sales stuff in general. So what are we doing this weekend? I am like Saturday. I, I've, I've been having a rough week. There's no two ways about it. Work's been, work's been kind of rough. So uh, Friday, I am, we're going out to dinner. And then Saturday, uh, my lovely wife, Ariana, and I, we're going to take a drive around Hingston Run Dam. And then later on that night, we're going to watch uh, Airplane with a friend of ours. You know Hingston that they're closing Run Dam is awesome. dining. I'm sorry. Both of you spoke at the same time and my brain exploded. <laughs> Christy, go ahead. You know they're closing in-person dining, right? Yes. I did As not a, I, I actually today. catch the date because... It, it doesn't, it, as of today, is it as of today? I want to say it's either today or tomorrow. I'm looking for it. Well, Give me fuck, a there goes Chinese buffet. What, the, what am I supposed to do with my immunity? <laughs> you may or may not have. Nobody fucking knows. Because yeah, it's my doctor, my doctor says three months. I'm going to trust her. So, but I, God damn it. I got three months to play around with and I'm hoping like my doctor's saying, hey, we're going to be able to get the vaccine to people hopefully by January. So I think tomorrow is the last day. Yes. Uh, they go into effect at 12.01 a.m. on December 12th. Today's the 10th, so that's uh, Saturday morning. So uh, go yeah, have your last tomorrow until midnight. meal out, I we're, guess. We're uh, going to have but... Chinese and then we'll order in for the rest of our lives. <laughs> hey. Until January. Yeah, the rest of us have been ordering in for months. So, <laughs> we so just had Galenas today so, for lunch. So have I. So have I. Jesus Christ, there's so many pizza boxes. And, <laughs> like, she just ordered from Red Lobster and Applebee's. You know, I, can I tell you something weird? Yeah. I just thought about this. I have actually not ordered pizza at all what? on quarantine. What? We only not had a couple of times when it was, like, back in the spring, I would say. Pizza is I have, love. I had one person order pizza and bring it to us, but I have not ordered pizza at all the entire quarantine. I make my own, and the kids help me, and that's like one of the things we do is they like to decorate their own pizzas. And so, like, I just have either like non bread or dough thought out so that we can just roll out our own crust and make our own flatbreads. Now, do you like spicy yeah. food? I can't eat it with, with the little ones. Never um, mind. Never mind then. So I don't even bother. I miss spicy food, but like Max tries everything I eat. So I have to like keep the spice down to a minimum. I'll tell you what. Just get like get like a small burning down the house pizza while they're sleeping from, from the Pizza Deli six pack. That's funny that you think my kids sleep. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Amber, what are you uh, doing this weekend besides not eating spicy things while your children don't sleep? Um, I am cooking um, and catching up on all the homeschooling that I did not get done so far. And hopefully, okay, so I actually do have a lot of like running to do. I got to hit the liquor store. That's a number one. Um, I got to go pick up my daughter's glasses are in very exciting stuff so she'll be able to see um so i'm picking those up and then uh i'm gonna make dinner for somebody over the weekend and uh what else did I, I had a, i have a list somewhere 
I forgot where I put the list. I just remember liquor store and glasses. I lost it. Okay, I'm sorry. I lost the rest. There was more. A Amber will be going to the liquor store and picking up glasses this weekend. Oh, I have to register another car. Ah, it's just a thing you do every week now. <laughs> I'm collecting cars. It looks like I'm having a gathering all the time. And it's just all these cars that we're not driving. <laughs> That's rough. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, if you ever decide to sell one, let me know. Well, I I, I am going to get rid of one. And um, I, I had somebody that was interested in it, but you and I can talk. We're, are we done recording? Because you and I can just talk about it now. <laughs> uh, I'll go ahead and just say what I'm doing this weekend or where I'll be this weekend. Where will couch. you be? Couch. couch. <laughs> I love my couch. Amazing couch. All right. So, uh, so yeah, that's uh, what we'll be doing and where we'll be being this weekend. And we will see you next week. Thank you, as always, from the bottom of our filthy hearts for listening to our filthy words. Bye. Bye. Boy. My sources this week are Mike Dash on Smithsonian Mag, MedlinePlus.gov, The Woman Who Smashed Codes by Jason Fagoni, Sandra Bill on OmarKayamRubiot.wordpress.com, Jessica Beneth on ABC.net.au, as well as Megan Dillon and Daniel Keene from the same source, Craig Cook from the Northern Star and from the Adelaide Advertiser, and Professor John Burton Cleland, Summerton Man Pathologist Report. My sources are Wikipedia.org, SmithsonianMag.com, CypherMysteries.com, AtlasObscura.com, and the Thinking Sideways podcast. Come back. We miss you guys so much. My sources this week are allthatsinteresting.com by Geisley Ruiz, adelaidenow.com by Renato Costello, archives.sa.gov.au, uh, theavclub.com by Mike Vago, and abc.net.au by Jessica Bennett. <laughs>